You're listening to The Road with Pastor Teacher Steve Holt. That's why it's so important when we come on Sunday, we are focused. Not on our phones, not on our families, not on our jobs. We're focused on Him being on the throne. And if we can start carrying that home and take that home from our secular home and start worshiping there, we make our home sacred. At The Road, our vision is to raise up wholehearted disciples of Jesus Christ. For more information on The Road, visit theroad.org. We hope you are encouraged by today's message from Pastor Teacher Steve Holt. Look back again at 1 Samuel 16. So I want to go back to 1 Samuel 16, and I want to continue what we talked about last week on the resume of David as it relates to praise and worship. Now, granted, I know there's a difference between praise and worship. I'm not going to go into the semantics of that here, but I am going to talk about this aspect of lining ourselves up with what God's doing in heaven right now. Because, because Jesus is the one who commanded us to pray, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So where we're going to go with this today is what's happening in heaven that we're asking God to do on earth. What's happening in heaven that God wants to bring to the earth because he commands us to pray that way. And then he commands us at the end, thine is the kingdom and thine is the power and thine is the glory. Well, what in the world is Jesus talking about? Well, I think in this passage from a young guy, he's probably 13 years old, David, who has somehow learned about the presence of God. Look back at verse 18. And if I sound a little hoarse, the Georgia-Alabama game was last, was yesterday. And um, man, what what a demoralizing last three minutes. You know, I don't know if those Vegas bookies pay people off or not, but if they do, they should have somehow sped that clock up just three minutes faster and we would have won the game. But I got so into it that I was working on my granddaughter's playhouse and I'm putting in wood, a wood floor. It's a, you know, a little, it's, it's the little wood floor you get at like Hobby Lobby. Okay, I'm not putting in a wood floor. It's obvious when I tell you the rest of it, I didn't do very good. And I slice, slice off like an eighth of an inch of my finger with the razor while I'm sitting there cutting the wood floor. So I paid in blood for a dumb football game. But anyway, in verse 18, David, who's not watching football games, but he's spending time with the Lord. It says at the last part of verse 18, the Lord is with him. So the Lord, the presence of God. So we talked about the last few weeks, there, there's three things that we notice about David. Number one, he had developed a skill and his skill was playing a harp. Now, if we follow the 10,000 hour rule of how we develop skill based on some of the research that's been done, that means men and women around eight years old, around eight years old, this kid is putting in 40 hours a week on the harp. 
And this coming year in 2019, we are taking, and I'm sorry, but I'm a hunter. Uh, maybe you can call it F-stop, whatever you want to call it if you're a photographer. But we're putting the crosshairs of this church increasingly on our young people. We are building a church that we pray if the Lord tarries would last for 100 years. It can't be just while I'm the pastor. We've got to be raising up other people to pastor this church so that if we were dropped back into the future and we could come into the future 100 years from now, this church would be more powerful than it is today. It'd be being led possibly by little four and five-year-olds that are now in next-gen junior down below because they heard the gospel at four or five years old because we know this, that 80% of people get born again before they're 12 years old. And so we are gonna pour resources into those areas at an even higher level than we have in the past. So when I look at, so when I look at the, the society in which we're praying for, these are the wholehearted disciples that we have every week here. That are so, most of them are going to go into business. Most of them are going to go into the school system. Most of them are not going to be pastors. They're going to be teachers. They're going to be scientists. They're going to be mechanics. They're going to be doing those things. And they need to know from an early age that they are missionaries into those areas of our culture. And we've, and we've messed up the whole idea of the, the secular and the sacred. And somehow I do sacred work and you do secular work. That's dumb. It's not biblical. You want, you want to know, this has nothing to do with this, but let me just say this. I mean, it, it does in a way. I'll, I'll bring it back around. But think about it this way. That if you're walking in the kingdom and you're bringing the presence of the kingdom, look, look at this. In the case of Saul, who's demonized, anybody ever worked for a demonized boss? Okay, if you've worked for a demonized boss, it's the first step to the anointing of God. But so David gets involved with a demonized boss. He's, listen, he's walking in the sacred. It says the Lord is with him. He turns the secular into the sacred by walking into it with kingdom presence over him. Do you hear what I'm saying? So that if you're a teacher in a school, if you're a lawyer, if you're a mechanic, if you're a housewife, and you're bringing the kingdom into your environment, you just turn the secular into the sacred. It has nothing to do with a facility or a building. Now, this is the part I'm going to get in trouble. But I can say it because I is one. There are many pastors out there and many Christian leaders who are actually bringing the secular into the sacred because they don't walk with God. They get paid by a church. They get paid by a nonprofit. They get paid by a missionary organization, but they're actually secular because they're not bringing the kingdom. They're bringing themselves So men and women, let's just blow this secular and sacred up and let's rethink about it that if God's called you, let's say, into government, you've been called to minister in government, you might be working in in the government building, you might be running for office or whatever, and you're a kingdom person and you live for the kingdom 
and you spend time with the Lord and you're praying, God, use me in government. You're turning that government office when you come in from a secular organization into a sacred one because you just brought the presence of God in there. That's powerful, folks. That's what David's doing. He's 13 years old. He's been practicing since he was eight. He brings the presence of God into that environment. And look what happens. And we looked at this last week. I'm just going to just kind of go over it real quick. Verse 23. And so it was whenever the spirit from God was upon Saul that David would take a harp. So he's skilled with a harp. Play it with his hand. He's a worshiper. Then Saul would become refreshed and well, and the distressing spirit would depart from him. So what happens when we bring the kingdom, when we bring righteousness, peace, and joy into the workplace, into our home, into our parenting, into our marriage, and that's really where it all starts is right there in our marriage and our family. If we're married, if you're single and you're living with some roommates, it starts there. But when you go into work, you bring the sacred folks. And when you do, demons flee. Demons hate that. See, so the whole idea was set up by the enemy to convince us that the pastor does the work. He's the guy, and we go listen to him on Sunday, and, and then we've done our sort of civic duty, and, and then we go and we just act like everybody else during the week, and, what, and, and we never see that anywhere in the book of Acts. We don't see that anywhere in Scripture. But if we can start to actually reimagine Bible today and begin to reimagine not the culture, but what the Bible says to us about who we are, where we are, and what we're doing, then we would start to sacredize the secular. We would start to bring the kingdom in. And that's what David's doing. So now turn to Isaiah 61 again. So we looked at it last week. I'm gonna go real quick. I'm gonna do a little bit of you know, scripture roulette here, um, Isaiah 61, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. This is Jesus. He used this as his missional statement in Luke four, because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. So that's the mission of Jesus. And men and women, that's the mission of the church to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. Now, verse three, to console those who mourn in Zion, to give them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning. Now listen to this, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. So last week we said, you gotta put on the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. Now listen, if we do that daily, here's what it says will happen. You'll become a tree of righteousness. Remember the first word description of the kingdom of God is righteousness, peace, and joy. Now if you read all of this, righteousness, peace, and joy is covered in all three verses right here. That if we start to think, oh God, use me to be a comfort to those who mourn. God, use me to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. That means positive. That means being joyful. That means uh, proclaiming the, the, the goodness of God. And that's really what praise is. Praise is proclaiming the good things that God has done. 
you release, listen, you release over the atmosphere the kingdom. And if you put that garment, and you got to put it on, by the way, you put on the garment of praise, he says here, it will break the spirit of heaviness. You see, that's what's happening with Saul, is that David, as as just a young 13-year-old, he comes in, he's just doing what he did in Bethlehem in the hills there with his sheep. He's not doing anything different. He has integrity. He brings what he's already doing. And man, it just shocks the whole court system of Saul because heaviness has been ruling almost since the first year of his administration. You see, Saul starts off really good. It even seems like he was super humble. I mean, he hides from from the prophet because he doesn't want to be king. God calls him, brings him out as king. He's supposed to be under an administration that will last forever is what the scriptures say. God tells Samuel to tell him, you could, your whole administration could have lasted forever. But because you didn't obey, because sacrifice is not greater than a broken and a contrite spirit. I'm going to snatch your administration away from you and I'm going to give it to someone who has a heart after me. And that was David. So we talked about last week, when we start to praise God, it breaks off a spirit of heaviness. Now, how does that work? So go now to Revelation, book of Revelation, chapter four. Only place in scripture where we have such a beautiful picture of heaven. And we we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So John is on the island of Patmos. He's there because of the persecution across the Roman Empire. We believe this is Domitian, um, another one of the the lunatic emperors of Rome at that time. And Christians are getting killed. His friends are being, being mutilated in the arena by lions. And John's probably the only one left. He's in his 90s here. So listen. In every sense of the meaning of the word persecution, John knows it. And as he looks at what's happening across the earth, there's every reason for him to feel hopeless. But then he gets invited up into heaven through an open door. And I want to look at that because because when we pray for heaven to come down, we have to understand what's happening in heaven. So in verse one, it says this, after these things, I looked and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me saying, come up here and I will show you things which must take place after this. So, so first of all, John is about to enter another realm of reality. So Do you guys know, we all know, I believe, you wouldn't be at this church if you didn't know this, that there's two rims of reality. There's the three-dimensional world that you can touch and see and feel, but there's a fourth dimension, and that's a spiritual dimension which we cannot see, and sometimes we do. Some of you in this room have seen angels. Some of you in this room have seen demons. You've told me that. Some of you regularly see that. And it's, it's like a seer gift, S-E-E-R. That's the reason we have seer, because you see. You see things. I don't have that gift. Um, 
I, and I love to have seers around me because they do. They see things. They, they have the ability to see. They're prophetic. They, they see that kind of stuff. Well, John, literally, in, in this apocalypse, this, this rending, this opening of the heavens, he gets to see now what is happening in, listen, God's living room. So he gets to go into God's living room, and here's what he sees. Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. Now let's just stop right there. That's the essence of praise and worship is that there's a throne. There is a throne, and, and somebody's sitting on it. It's not unoccupied. It's never unoccupied. It's always occupied, and it's not up for a vote every four years. And he runs the universe. So where we think that the three-dimensional world somehow is affecting the fourth-dimensional world, it's the other way around, folks. That as we line ourselves up with what's happening on that throne, that changes the three-dimensional world. The world, the reality, the control room of the universe is right there in verse 2. So back years ago, I had the opportunity when I was a missionary in Japan to go into a battleship in Yokosuka. I went into Yokosuka. I knew the, the admiral. He let my whole staff team come in. We went in. We went into this battleship, massive, massive battleship, you know, like, you know, four times larger than this room, just massive thing. And we got in there and he said, you want to see where everything happens? We said, of course. And he said, not many people get to see this. I'm going to show you the control room. So he took us down into this, into this room, which was about the size of this stage. And in the center was a chair. You could call it a throne. And, and a guy sat there and all around him were computers. And all of these guys had a job to do with cannons. And they had a job to do with torpedoes. And it was nuclear. So somebody had the nuclear stuff. And he showed how this guy in a swivel chair could just swing around. And if they were in a war, they were in a battle, he could tell guys what to do. And then they would, they would fire off stuff. So, so this is the control room. So this little control room that, that we were in controlled everything on the battleship and could destroy other battleships based on the decisions made by the guy in the swivel chair. The throne. Jesus is on the throne. Whether there's a Republican in the White House, whether there's a Democrat in the White House, where the balance of power with the two parties lie, whether we decide to lift the tariffs on China or not, whether we try to decide what's happening with the stock market and whether we should invest or not, he is still on the throne. And let me just say this, that when we begin to praise and worship him, we are entering into the throne room. That's why it's so important when we come on Sunday, we are focused, not on our phones, not on our families, not on our jobs. We're focused on him being on the throne. And if we can start carrying that home and take, take that home from our secular home and start worshiping there, we make our home sacred. So there's this throne. First thing he notices, and he keeps talking about it. A lot of thrones here. And he sat there and he was like Jasper 
in a sardis stone in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne in appearance like an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones. And on the throne saw 24 elders sitting clothed in white robes. And they had crowns of gold on their heads. And from the throne proceeded lightnings, thunderings, and voices. Seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Before the throne, there was a sea of glass like crystal. And in the midst of the throne and around the throne were four living creatures full of eyes in front and in back. It's like a Steven Spielberg movie. The first living creature was like a lion and the second living creature like a calf and the third living creature had a face like a man and the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. I mean, that, won't that be cool to see these, these creatures when, you, when we get there? The four living creatures, each having six wings, were full of eyes around and within and they do not rest day or night saying, holy, holy, Holy. Now, in the earliest manuscripts, holy is repeated nine times. Holy, holy, holy. Holy, holy, holy. Holy, holy, holy. Lord God Almighty, who was, is, and is to come. Men and women, Jesus is the same. He's the Jesus we read about in Scripture. He's the Jesus in time immemorial that we read about in Genesis. He's the Jesus in the future that he was then and he is now. And when we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth that is in heaven, we're inviting Jesus to the earth to do what he does best, and that is he changes lives. And when we worship him, it, it releases to him a living room over our lives like he has in heaven because this is what he loves. Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and they worship him who lives forever and ever. And they cast their crowns. I've circled that. I'm gonna explain in a moment. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, you are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things. For by... Your will, they exist and were created. And there's a lot here to unpack. I don't have time. But here's the thing I want us to get this morning is that you have a crown. Everybody has a crown. And in that crown is part of your identity. And that crown is something that gives you here on earth glory, honor, and power. That crown that's been placed upon your head even by, even by God giving you the skills and the talents and the gifts you are. Listen, You've got to cast before his throne. And until you cast them before his throne and you relinquish your glory, power, and honor to him, you're missing out on the release of the kingdom of God over your life. Have you given your crown to Christ? Because that's part of praise and worship. And that's what I'm going to challenge us this morning to do is, it, it, does God have your job? Does the Lord have your girlfriend? Does the Lord have your boyfriend? Does the Lord have your money? Does the Lord have your, your house? Does the Lord have your car? Does the Lord have your heart? 
Because when we cast that before him, that's the beginning of the release of the kingdom in praise and worship. You see, if, if worship doesn't involve casting our crowns, then we're just worshiping worship. But when we start casting our crowns in worship, that means we're coming to adore him. My favorite Christmas hymn. Come, let us adore him. Oh, come, let us adore him. The, the, the elders in heaven are casting their crowns before the throne and say, receive, O God, glory, honor, and power. So when we begin to worship the Lord, when we begin to praise him from our heart as best we can, and we're all at different maturity levels in that, you're lining up with heaven. You're making his living room our living room. Isn't that cool? I love my living room. I love my living room. I'm comfortable in my living room. I wouldn't be comfortable in your living room, but I'm comfortable in my living room. And we, Liz and I have made our living room the way we like it. And Jesus has made his living room the way he likes it. And the more we get closer to lining up with his living room and his living room becoming our living room, the more the presence of God comes. That's awakening. That's revival in our lives. Now, turn to Psalm 67 and we'll close with this. Psalm 67, right in the middle. Psalms is right in the middle of your Bible. This psalm is inscribed on the inside of my wife's wedding ring. It was inscribed on the inside of my wedding ring until I lost it. And I lost it when I was working out one time, so now I wear this rubber ring. Um, but it's apt because, I mean, it's, apt, it's appropriate that I wear this rubber ring because if you men aren't like rubber, you won't stay married long. So you got to be able to bounce around, man. I tell you, marriage is a battle sometimes, right? Everybody go like this. You know what I'm talking about. The rest of you, just give it a few more years. You'll understand. But we did this because we were missionaries and we were committed to missions and we've always been committed to missions and we want to reach this city for Christ now. And here's how you do it. The formula is right here. God, be merciful to us and bless us and cause your face to shine upon us. That's the presence of God, men and women. That, that, that reminds me of Moses. Moses led out of presence. He led out of the shine upon his face because he was face to face with God in the presence of God is the face of God, and you can't shine with the face of God if you're not looking at him. That your way may be known on the earth and your salvation among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you, and let the nations be glad and sing for joy. I mean, I'd love to preach more on that, but the reason we bring Jesus to a nation, the reason we bring Jesus to our city is it brings them joy. Wouldn't it be cool that there was so much of a presence of God in Colorado Springs that almost any work you go into, there's joy there. Now, they wouldn't understand it. I don't even think Saul gets what's happening with David. He doesn't get it. He just likes it. 
He just likes the effect, but he doesn't get it. It's obvious because he gets more and more jealous. And as he does, he actually casts out the very one who's bringing the joy. So he doesn't get it. And a lot of times in in our work, you're, you're gonna be working for a boss who doesn't get it, but he likes the atmosphere you bring because you're a kingdom person because it's bringing joy. For you shall judge the people righteously and govern the nations of the earth. Look at verse five. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Then the earth shall yield her increase. God, our God, our own God shall bless us. God shall bless us. And look at the last, the last line. And all the ends of the earth shall fear him. So men and women, when we bring praise and worship into our jobs, it releases actually production wherever you go. Wherever you go, you, you start to see production. You know, I think David's ability to write what we call the Psalter or the Psalms and the poetry that he wrote was because of the praise that was in his life. And I don't care what it is that God's called you to be, if it's a chemist, if it's a high school teacher or principal, if it's to be an administrator or to be a housewife or a stay-home dad, you start praising God and you're gonna release the kingdom over that which you do and it's gonna bring production on the earth. It's gonna bring joy and it's gonna change people's lives. Now, here's the problem and I'll close with this. The problem is some of you have never released yourself to worship. You've never really given yourself wholeheartedly to praise. It could be fears. It could be a religious thing because you grew up in the church and you never saw anybody. I mean, everybody just did their little, their little hymn thing, which is fine. I mean, I mean, God doesn't care about the position of your body as much as the attitude of your heart. But I will say that there's a new work of God that could be involved that God's calling you to, like we read in Revelation. You're always in Revelation 4, that's really loud there. It's really loud. Go to verse 5. It's on the level of thunder and lightning. Wouldn't it be cool if the people across the street knew we were meeting because our praise and worship was so loud? They'd have to call the cops or the fire department. These people are loud over there. I would not mind that. Because you can't get loud unless there's a sense of bold, radical abandonment. Let me just tell you something. Between two and five o'clock in my rec room yesterday... There was screaming, there was jumping, there was hollering when Georgia scored. And we've got something a little bit more important and someone a little bit greater than Georgia football happening here. Let's engage our hearts. Let's be demonstrative. Jack Taylor, in giving a definition of praise, he said this, praise in its essence is the adoration of God. Praise is always active, assertive, demonstrative, and open. That sounds like, to me, like a football game. 
wherever it is mentioned, listen, wherever it is mentioned, movement, action, sounds, and songs are seen and heard. Hello. You've been listening to The Road with Pastor Teacher Steve Holt. We hope you have been blessed by today's message. To connect with us further, visit theroad.org. If you are walking through a difficult time, we want to pray for you. Go to theroad.org, click on the Ministries tab, and go to our prayer page to send us your prayer request. Thanks again for tuning in today, and be sure to listen to the next edition of The Road with Pastor Teacher Steve Holt.